Dune is conceived of as a, as a planet that is totally desert, so that water on it is the metaphor of, say, oil here, uh, very appropriate at the moment. Uh, it is a metaphor of uh, clean air, metaphor of water itself, I mean, potable water. And it's a metaphor for the shortages that we are encountering because of overpopulation. Mm. And the story is uh, told in, uh, in terms of, the, of people who are recognizable. You'd recognize these people, but they live in a culture that is somewhat different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast. We are your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee. The movie buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. What's up, Real Talk listeners? As always, thank you for downloading this episode of the show. And tonight, we have a loaded show for you. We're going to be talking all things Dune, including the 1984 David Lynch film, or should I say the Alan Smithy film. Uh, we thought this would be a great way to usher in the brand new version of Dune, directed by Dennis Villeneuve, set to release on October 22nd of this year. And I don't know about my co-host this evening, but I'm very excited for the new film, and I hope it's a box office success. We need some box office hits. We had the the new Marvel movie that came out that did pretty well. I think Candyman's done okay, but overall the box office is just way down, and I definitely want to see that get going again. also want to welcome any The Great Escape customers who have joined us for this episode to find out if they were the lucky winners of these amazing items that we're raffling off. And The Great Escape is here in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's the leading place to buy or sell collectible films, music, comics, video games, and toys. They've been going strong since 1977, and I've personally been a customer of theirs for over 20 years. And audience, what we have going on is Real Talk Movie Podcast and The Great Escape have partnered up to do a giveaway just because we purchased some gift cards. They've donated a collectible toy from Gremlins 2. The Collector's Edition Blu-ray of 1984's Dreamscape, Baby Yoda life-size stand-up, and an awesome Back to the Future poster. And we actually covered Back to the Future a couple of months ago on episode 38, so check that out if you haven't already. So in total, we're going to announce six separate winners on this episode, and we'll announce those winners here in a few. Now, our guest tonight has also donated his book. And we're going to be giving that away as well. So a lot going on tonight, a lot of great things. And so let's get into it. And first, let me bring in my co-host here and movie buddy. I don't even think I've got to ask, but you've been on the spice all week long, haven't you? I know what you want me to say. You know, like this brings me back to my time as a as a Fremen collecting the spice melange. But that's not you know what I've been up to. Let me tell you, Wes, what I've been up to. You know, as you guys know, I was a prolific film worm trainer. I spent a lot of time training gigantic worms on in film. You know, I, I did uh, 
I did these worms in Dune. I did the ones in uh, Star Wars, the you know the less mobile worms, the ones that stood in one place. And then even the Beetlejuice worms, you know, I I developed and perfected my my protocol. And then and then we even did things like trimmers. We did all kinds of things. But I've been doing a lot of worm training, and I've been getting back into that lately. So you're kind of like uh, the the guy in Jurassic World that is, has trained the raptors. Yeah, except for I focus on giant worm snakes. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that sounds uh like you actually have been on the spice all week. Uh, T-Man, <laughs> get in here. Have you ever dabbled in the spice? Oh man, the spice is good. You gotta you gotta get into that spice when you're about to watch David Lynch's Dune. I know that much, and uh, that's pretty great that Gabe is now a worm wrangler it's the first i've heard of that that's pretty interesting <laughs> no i've been really just you know uh just been watching dune uh getting ready for this episode you know and really in my spare time i've just been working uh on the weirding way uh mm-hmm. you know just trying to get my voice and and the the weirding way all set so that when people listen to this episode they're actually going to hear my voice in the weirding way and they're actually going to laugh at the jokes i want them to laugh at cry at the times i want them to cry and it's just going to be exactly what we always envision because you know i don't you know i've talked to fans that are like I don't know if anybody's laughing with you all. I'm like, well, just wait till the Dune episode and you will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just, while you were telling us that, I've just done some quick math here. So if Dune came out in 1984, they had to be shooting it, you know, b- before that. Gabe was born in 1984. Uh-huh. So something's not adding up with this worm training story. I, I mean, I was, I really believed it. I took it hook, line, and singer until. Just now, well, when I, Wes, I it's a profession that out. you're it's a profession that you're born into. It's not something you just learn. It's uh-huh. <laughs> as you saw makes... in the movie Dune, like you either have it or you don't. You can either mount a giant worm and, you know, it or not. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I think we've wasted enough of the episode on this, so we'll, <laughs> we'll just move along. <laughs> but as I said earlier, we have a very special guest with us tonight. And I'm almost afraid to unleash him on a Real Talk audience because you'll start to question why you even listen to our show whenever you could maybe go over and catch some different things that he's on from time to time. So so Victor is a talent manager and he's a writer and he's written and recorded a collection of speculative horror stories titled The Sound of Fear. And that's actually the book that we're going to be giving away. He has become a very he's become very well loved in the horror community due to his writing abilities and the frequent call-ins and analysis of films and themes that he does on Land of the Creeps podcast. And that community loves him so much. You can check out The Sound of Fear at vhrodriguez.wordpress.com, which I will link that in the show notes as well. So you don't have to have a pen and paper ready. You want to go and check that out, just go to our show notes and the link will be there. Victor also collaborates with another sister show of ours, Phantom Galaxy Podcast, with our friends Nathan and Bill. They're doing great work over there, and they've been covering full seasons of The X-Files, which T-Man is also doing with them. We're just so happy to have Victor with us, and so without further ado, Real Talk is proud to welcome Mr. Victor H. Rodriguez. Victor, welcome to Real Talk. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you, Wes. I, I really, uh, really appreciate the invite. Uh, you guys have a great show. Uh, I just listened to the interview um, that you did with uh, Ed Sanchez 
on the Blair Witch Project, and it was awesome. So, um, yeah, you guys are doing great. Um, I've, I've been a listener for a while now, and, uh, yeah, it was great working with Tommy on Phantom Galaxy, and I can't wait to dive into the sand dunes, as it were. Well, we that was, uh, again, I, I think I, I told you offline, that was kind of a, a bucket list item, a dream come true for me. I'm just a huge fan of the Blair Witch Project, and to sit down and, and listen to Ed talk about that and all of the other interesting great things that he's done in his career for an hour and a half that was that was something else but uh enough about him let's talk more about you tell us about the sound of fear what can audiences expect from it i know i listed your wordpress address but is that where you want prefer audience to go oh uh yeah uh you can also just uh type in the sound of fear into uh, amazon's search engine and it'll pop up but uh, yeah, as far as I know, it's the only thing there that's called that. But um, yeah, it's a it's it's a collection of short fiction that uh, has uh, stories that are mostly horror, but there's a couple of fantasy and, a, and one sci-fi story and a couple of noir uh, sort of crime stories uh, that are kind of like, like if you're into the twilight zone, kind of these, uh, twist endings, uh, you'll probably dig this. Um, and, uh, it is all based on encounters between humans and sounds of the unknown. So that's the framework of the book. And I had a lot of fun writing it. I love that concept. And, and can we get like the, the, the official scoop? Are, are you working on a follow-up book? What's up next for you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm doing a follow-up book. It should be out around this time next year. Um, and I think that's about all I can say about it right now. But if you like The Sound of Fear, you're probably going to like this. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, maybe, you know, once it comes out, we can have you back on. You can come tell us more about that, and we'll cover some some other awesome sci-fi or horror-type film. That would be great. So we're we're of course fans of your work here, and we knew we needed to get you on. And since T Man had been collaborating with you on the other podcast, uh, Phantom Galaxy, again, you know, he reached out to say, "Hey, would you be interested in coming on?" And uh, there was some discussion, and apparently, Dune was the topic, and that's what has won out, and that's what again we're covering tonight. And so, if you will, what was what was the reason that you really wanted to cover Dune and and get into this world? Wow. Um, yeah. Well, it's my favorite uh, science fiction slash fantasy novel of all time, uh, and uh, it's a, a pretty famous series of books that started in the 1960s and continued on through. Uh, I think the the 1980s was the end of it. Uh, but it is has been hugely influential. I always run into people in life that are into Dune, and uh, there's no commonality between them. That's what's so cool about it. Like uh, there there are people that um, you know. I, I used to be a music supervisor, and and I you know ran into a lot of musicians that were into it. And uh, now that I'm writing, I obviously I run to a lot of writers that are into it. When I, I, you know, I moved up to the Pacific Northwest from Los Angeles about seven years ago and uh, joined a library group where we, we read a book a month. And um, Dune uh, finally came onto our, our desks. And, uh, and that was the one book that everybody in that library group 
loved. Like nobody didn't like it. <laughs> so it's got a universal appeal. T-Man, what about you? I know whenever Victor had mentioned Dune, I know you got really excited about it too. What what was kind of the reason why you wanted to to dive into this film and and just the book and the world tonight? Yeah, I think Victor, you know, wrote it really well. I consider myself like a fake Dune fan because I haven't read the book, but I kind of grew up in the Dune world. You know, my dad is a huge Dune fan, so he he's always talked about it the book and the movie. And I grew up, you know, I watched this film at a young age, probably too young to really understand anything about it. Mm. And I've watched it, you know, many times since. And I've of course seen the science, you know, the sci-fi miniseries. So I kind of, I know the world. I've always really liked it. And um, there's just something about it that it's just so fascinating. It's so unique. And the movie, of course, is so unique too. And I'm excited to kind of talk about it and, and dive into it because it's it's a world that you can tell has had so much influence on just the sci-fi genre in general. And, of course, when the new one came out, I've been following that ever since it was, you know, they've talked about making it. And as soon as Victor, you know, Victor and I were texting about some ideas for the show. And as soon as he mentioned Dune, it was just like a media is like, yes, we've got to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's just perfect timing. I don't know about Gabe, but for myself, the appeal of doing this episode tonight is that I had never seen the movie. I was aware of the film. I was aware of the the, the worm, the big sand worm, and thought I understood uh, perhaps a little bit more than what I actually did about the history of the film and the film itself. And so it was so appealing to me is because most of the time when we do these retro episodes, I've seen the movie a hundred times. Um, but this is one that was a blind spot for me, so I, I enjoyed finally kind of checking that off and obviously uh, i've been following the new film i'm really excited about it and uh, this was just a great excuse to dive into uh, the original movie what about you gabe I'll, I'll say i'm glad like i consider myself a sci-fi fantasy like guru and i'd never seen this i know victor's probably sitting in his chair like what and but i had <laughs> what type of guru <laughs> what type of guru am i talking to this is i dude <laughs> Hadn't seen Dune and claims to be the, but I mean, I, I mean, I've watched all of Battlestar Galactica. I've watched, you know, I've watched massive amounts of this, this, but I hadn't seen Dune. And so, and it's right up my alley. I, Tommy will tell you, I forced him into watching like sci-fi and adventure novels. Like, and this is just, I hadn't gotten into it and he sold me. And then I watched the movie and it was weird. It's a weird <laughs> land. I will say that, but I really liked it in a weirding way. So, <laughs> nice. Hey, listeners, if you've been listening to our recent episodes, you've been hearing about the epic sci-fi book series Shadowed Stars by author Stephen Couch. We're so excited to have Stephen as a partner of Real Talk, a movie podcast, because Shadowed Stars incorporates all the aspects of storytelling that most of us movie fans love. As the movie buddy always says, he likes when the story transports the audience to a different world, and that's exactly what Stephen is doing with the book series. Shadowed Stars is an epic science fiction series, but as we learned on our recent interview series episode with Stephen, he likes to incorporate other genres into his books, such as romance, horror, action, and even westerns, which I love that approach. Now, I do want to caution that Shadowed Stars is for a mature audience, so I don't recommend tucking the kids into bed while reading chapters from the book. 
it being for a mature audience is another aspect that I think is very unique as we normally don't get that with other sci-fi epics. Stephen has eight numbered books planned in the series. The odd numbered books will focus on one line of characters. The even numbered books will focus on another line of characters with some cameos mixed in. This helps to keep the stories fresh and the character arcs forming over the entire series. Listeners, I can't encourage you enough to check out Shadowed Stars. Book one is available now and so is book two, Shadowed Stars, The Reign of the Black Guard. Stephen is hopeful that book three will be available by the end of 2021. Now, where can you purchase these books? Book one and two, again, available now. Head over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, iTunes, you name it. For more information on Shadowed Stars and author Stephen Couts, visit shadowedstarsbooks.com. So, Victor, if you will, just for audience members, because I'm sure not everyone that's going to listen to this has has seen Dune, or if they've seen the movie, they might not even understand what in the heck was going on. So just give a, a brief overview of Dune and the franchise and all that. Right. Um, well, the, uh, the, the book Dune uh, and, uh, and the movie Dune, the 1984 movie, uh, are a huge it's part of a huge saga of uh, sort of human development in a science fiction context uh, so the 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 through line is you know what becomes of humanity 10,000 20,000 years from now and uh, that's where the the dune story starts it's about 10,000 years after humanity has risen to incredible heights and has designed these uh, AI-type robots that do everything for them, but it has also caused sort of a downfall of humanity because uh, I think it says something about this in the book, uh, the reliance on thinking machines has caused other humans to enslave certain humans with their machines. Uh, so there was a huge um, rebellion against against the use of thinking machines, and technology never again reached that height. So all of the the tech that you see in Dune are they're either preserved from ancient times, or um, they are sort of newfangled creations of uh, of warfare and and travel that. Uh, that people rely on to to get around. Now, um, at that point, um, at the at the point that humanity sort of recovers from the um, it, it's called the, uh, the the Butlerian Jihad or the Great Revolt. Um, at that point, uh, humanity has totally colonized space, and the owners of the planets uh, are collectively called uh, the Lands Rod, and they're basically nobles like they're they're like noble houses from you know earth's medieval period like a feudal society and they're all pretty powerful so they're all afraid to go to war with each other but um but they are the by far the most powerful uh humans in the universe now after the revolt uh that gives rise to a new column of power uh, called the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, which are basically the it, they they are the uh, caretakers of religion of the the universe of Dune, 
And um, because uh, we can't rely on machines anymore, uh, the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood are basically um, like if, if you guys are into martial arts movies, like they're like extremely developed Shaolin monks, like they have total body and mind control and um, and they have done lots of planning to uh, arrange the birth of this super being that is going to be the head of their order. Now, this is a completely the order is completely women. Uh, and the the birth of this being is is going to be male. So the Bene Gesserit sisters have been manipulating the the most powerful uh, houses in the Lanzrad to uh, get together and breed children that will eventually result in the most powerful mind and body that will be this being. Um, but they don't know who it is for sure. Uh, so they, they test everyone that it might be. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's sort of one other key part of Dune. And, um, and then of course the other big part is that, uh, um, the planet Dune, uh, also known as Arrakis. And uh, this is important because it's the only place where you can mine a spice, a special spice called melange, which um, makes the uh, the Bene Gesserits uh, more aware. Uh, it heightens their awareness. And uh, it has also given given rise to a third pillar of power called uh, the guild um, or the navigators who uh, are able to, with their minds, move fleets of spaceships across the universe in no time. Uh, so they're like extremely advanced mathematicians. And um, so all these uh, all these forces, the Lanzrad, the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood and the Guild Navigators are all very much attached to Spice, which is only found on this one planet. Uh, and that's sort of where the story begins. <laughs> I know Victor, it's a huge info Victor, download. The spice, um, doesn't the Spice make you live longer, too? Isn't that one of the other like side effects of Melange? Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. It's uh, it soon becomes obvious, like in the second and third book, that all the characters in Dune are super, super old, like hundreds of years old, and that's because they've been yeah, taking the spice. Well, thank you. And Victor, um, I gotta say, that was that was an amazing prologue <laughs> that you just did. Like you should write the prologue for Dune. I was just sitting here like, <laughs> I think I learned more about the Dune world than I've ever known <laughs> just by. <laughs> Uh, you, you saying all that, that was really good. Well, team in, in, in literally about six minutes, Victor has said more intelligent things than what we have done our entire year plus of being on a podcast. So, <laughs> yes. Yes. No, we're, was, we're, was... we're elevated, uh, real talk tonight. We don't even have anything to say to add on to it. Like <laughs> no. we're just sitting here. We're just no, sitting I here. I actually like, do have a comment, but it's more of a question comment. So, you know, let me try to sound not... In millions of years in the future, do you think it will be one item? You know, that's what I don't buy about Melange. Melange does so many things. It makes you live longer. It makes you travel across space. I think there's a more likelihood that it's going to be multiple items than it is just one item that does a do-all. Well, we, don't, we don't know. We haven't visited the planet uh, Rikus yet. Could, uh, you could go back to 1991 and think about all of the different gadgets and things that you would have to have that you now carry around 
in your pocket on your phone. That's true. What I want I understand what you're saying, but like that makes Arrakis like this incredible hotspot. Yeah. And in all re, I don't even. But I, I think, think what humanity what would for sure that, destroy themselves. Yeah, it's not about. I think it's not about the spice necessarily. It's not just saying, well, the spice. It's a it's a thematic choice they made with the book in that uh, because they wanted to get all the main characters on this planet. And I think it's it's about a lot of different themes, you know, colonialism, environmental degradation. There's a lot of themes going on. And the spice is a way to get all of those all those themes within one kind of structure, I think. No, that's a good point. And uh, let me I'm going to throw a curveball to everybody real quick. Gabe doesn't know I'm going to do this yet, okay. but for for the audience. All right. The, the novel came out in 1965. It was conceived in the late 50s, and it's considered to be maybe the best sci fi novel of all time. And a study in back in 2003 of like they they tracked as many sales of sci fi novels as they possibly could in Dune, apparently blow every other one of the novels away so not only is it considered maybe the best it's probably has sold the most as well and obviously the new movie is going to uh, get people right back into this world and i don't think mainstream culture truly understands the amount of influence that this novel had i know that i didn't and i have a tendency to to get down a bunch of uh, uh pun intended wormholes whenever <laughs> we get into these movies I knew, again, of Dune, but think I'm going to inspire some nerd rage here. But Star Wars, in particular, would probably not exist without Dune. And I also believe now that Lucas's 1977 film um, borrows or plagiarizes even plot elements directly that are, are out of Dune. And there's tons of, of similarities. Herbert was actually famous for saying... I'm going to try very hard not to sue. And he said that back in the 70s whenever <laughs> Star Wars came out. So I'm, let me just give a couple of bullet points so people that are like, what are you talking about? You know, like that I'm bashing Star Wars. So a Tatooine and Arrakis, all right, both very similar planets, both mm-hmm. Luke and Paul, who Paul, we haven't really said it yet, but he's he's the main, our main character here for um, the this this first story of Dune, they both received their calls to destiny there of these planets. Luke's uncle is a moisture farmer implanting devices in the desert to draw moisture from the atmosphere. Arrakis has a dew collector. They basically do the exact same thing. Both stories have sand crawlers. Star Wars in the mines of Kessel. There's a dangerous drug known as spice. Hmm. <laughs> Star Wars has the Empire, Dune has the Imperium, both ran by emperors, both stories about the collapse of controlling, extreme, totalitarian, I can't even say it, system of go- to- totalitarian systems there you go, of government. You got it. And then I th- we can keep going. You know, we got the princesses and we can keep oh, going. But I you think keep you keep going. Uh, look, look, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to grind my gears. But I, I, I thought this too, Wes. <laughs> I'm a Star Wars fan, and that's okay. Dune probably did invented Star Wars. We could go on. The Weirding Way is the Force. There's the one, you know, the one that's to save them all, you know, and they 
they have he slowly gradually becomes it it's it's freaking star wars he wrote it he should he probably should it's obvious right there's not (laughs) there's really not any dispute honestly well i've always looked at it as kind of two different ways like yeah they are very similar and like dune i've always considered like real science fiction like like just watching the movie um it's like real science fiction the books are real science fiction whereas star wars is like fantasy science fiction it's like kid sci-fi in a way it's like um you know dune is the book star wars is the cliff notes version mm-hmm. doesn't mean star wars still isn't good but dune is like the real deal from a sci-fi perspective well i don't know how many listeners we just lost but victor <laughs> any thoughts on this hey it's the truth yeah i i totally agree um there there are a lot of similarities uh between them and and you know uh furthermore i think you know lucas kind of george lucas kind of took the idea of oh you know in dune there's this desert planet it's all desert so he just kind of took that that a step further and it's like well we'll have the rebels be on hoth and it's an ice planet it's all ice and uh and and furthermore the jungle planet you know the uh you know the asteroid planet <laughs> right. uh, so i i think that it definitely inspired um inspired uh, george lucas to create star wars um there are a lot of differences with the stories too but i think you guys already hit on it um the the type the, the types of movies that they were are quite different you know there's i mean especially in dune there's a lot of introspection uh in star wars it's all externalized which i think makes for a better movie like it, it makes for a more yeah. entertaining experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah star wars fans don't be offended like i mean star wars is a better movie and a better movie series like one well, except for let's throw out those those brand those second and newest ones but um if this this type of world you're always you know copying at least a little now this is a little more blatant after Wes read that that uh, darning list, but I mean, I love your well, world, so don't let us thing. take away from it. But here's the thing: I mean, Dune is considered one of the grandfathers of the genre. I mean, yeah, it was written, it wrote in the '60s, and that's what happens with like kind of the iconic stories. They get, you know, kind of recontextualized into different ways. People steal and borrow. It's kind of like what happened with John Carter. John Carter from Mars, of yes. course. Mm. Um, is a famous book series from the um, early 1900s or early 20th century. And all of that stuff has been, you know, it was very new and fresh then, you know, people had never read anything like it. Yeah. But then, you know, when they had the movie that came out just a few years ago, it almost seemed quaint by that point because all of these other stories and movies had stolen from it, copied it. It was just so influential. It's hard to be, you know, kind of fresh in a way if people have been copying you for a hundred years. And of yeah. course, Dune isn't as, as old as that, but people have been copying Dune now for, you know, over 50 years now. Um, but it's good. It, but that's where you know something is great and iconic because people are continuously taking from it in so many different ways and and it's also true that that you know dune i mean maybe we'll get into this a little bit later uh wes if that's okay with you but um i i think that uh dune had its inspirations as well uh even going back to the odyssey you know the in ancient greece uh, probably the first novel ever written 
um, the journeys of Odysseus and his son Telemachus are pretty similar to what Paul goes through in Dune. Like, you know, they're going into hostile territory. They end up leading foreign people. Um, you know, there's some similarities there, too. And, you know, the ocean was the great unknown in ancient Greece, and now it's science fiction. So the great unknown is this planet that they know very little about. Well, it just kind of shows you that all, you know, pop culture or all, you know, fiction or whatever you want to call it is just continuously being recontextualized throughout the decade and throughout the centuries, I think, in some ways also. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm feeling pretty good right now because Victor and I are in sync because I was actually going to use that to transition us into some inspirational sources for the novel. So with that that's awesome. He's already done that. And I, I think a lot of people have have uh, criticized Dune for really ripping off or plagiarizing or being inspired by the story of Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence. You know, he wrote the book Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and that's a autobiographical account of his experience serving as a military advisor of Arab forces um, against the Ottoman Turks during World War One. So, uh, Victor, let me flip it over to you. What what are you seeing about Lawrence of Arabia, the film and the seven pillars of wisdom that really was an inspirational source for Dune? Well, um, yeah, that's uh, that's brilliant. I, I unfortunately I have not read the seven pillars of wisdom by T.E. Lawrence, but I have seen the movie uh, from 1962 by David Lean. And uh, it's an awesome movie, by the way. If you're like, if you're into sure. adventure, yeah, that kind of stuff, it's it's just great. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I it's my personal theory that um, Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, sat down in a movie theater in 1962 and saw Lawrence of Arabia, and then that was the unifying moment for Dune. Now, I, I don't think that he just said, oh, I know what I'm going to write now. I think that he already had Dune almost done, like at least the background of it pretty much hammered out years before that. But when he saw Lawrence of Arabia, the main character who, you know, is uh, played by Peter O'Toole, who has these insane blue eyes, like that really just tore a hole in Frank Herbert's brain. And he was like, now I know how I'm going to write Dune. Like, I know, I know what right. the plot of Dune is like, it's about Paul. And, um, and then the rest of it just developed. Uh, but That's yeah, there's awesome. a lot of similarities between the two. Uh, but you know, Dune has a lot of other, uh, uh inspirations too. There, there were a hey, couple of, Victor, sorry. Real quick. Let me just jump in here. Cause I, I love what you just said about Lawrence Arabia. First off, why, why can't Wes and Gabe, why can't you guys bring that type of level of, uh, theorizing? <laughs> uh, oh man. <laughs> Uh, We're all just I'm, like, what? we, have a we, we have need a some guest. more spice. We need we some have, spice. <laughs> we have a guest but, right now, Tommy. I'm letting him spotlight himself. I had all that stuff written down. I just didn't oh, say it. Oh, had it. That's true, right? You told me. <laughs> you told me. But no, I did want to just kind of uh, talk about that real quick, uh, Victor, is that I think that's a, a really great theory of yours because when you said that, I was like, you know what? I think that makes a lot of sense. And Victor's 100% right. Lawrence Arabia is one of the greatest movies ever made. I saw it in theater, you know, maybe two years ago, and I was just like, wow, got to see it on the big screen for sure if you have never seen it. It's a big screen movie. But, you know, I think where it, it's, 
it's similar is you know you take the outsider into this you know sand driven world and you know his task is to unify the varying tribes within the arab world to rise up during world war one um and against the ottoman empire and that's kind of the the plot line of paul atreides also when he goes to the freeman so i never thought of that victor until you kind of said that i'm like you know that makes a lot of sense and then the blue eye thing right there i'm like that's it that's where he got it peter o'toole yeah i yeah. love that too i thought that was that was really great and team and basically to to kind of sum up what you were saying you know both lawrence and paul atreides they're they're foreign figures they they immerse themselves into this desert culture and then they help locals basically overthrow their oppressors i mean well, that's, that's that's kind it. of sums I, it up and i love when paul says in the movie and i'm sure it says in the book he's like in on a arrakis it's desert power and that kind of that's lawrence of arabia in in that world in the in the part of world one they're fighting that's why they could win because it's all about the desert it's all about desert power and those tribes know how to win in the desert right so i think despite the similarities this is from what i understand about um both the dune the novel and uh, T.E. Lawrence's autobiography is that in Dune, you have Paul Atreides, who he is much more he's not conflicted about what he needs to do. You know what I mean? Like he is he he rises to the challenge. He embraces it. And according to the novel, again, I haven't read it. I, I think that Lawrence, the real man, was very much conflicted about whether he was doing the right thing, you know, mm. adopting the ways of foreign people, uh, assuming uh, authority over them. You know, he just has a lot of anxiety, apparently, in his writing throughout Seven Pillars. And I think that is so when Herbert, I think, saw that, that's where he was like, yeah, but I want my character to be this way. I don't want him to have these these anxieties, these conflictions within himself. Definitely 100% true uh, when it comes to Dune, but uh, Paul does have some uh, conflicts of morality uh, and ethics later in the series. Like uh, mm-hmm. in the, maybe the third book is when it starts. It starts to get really complicated. It's almost like uh, Frank Herbert's like outthinking himself. It's like, oh, okay, I've created a a bulletproof situation and then it's like oh i figured out a way how to undermine it and then he he undermines himself and then now what's paul gonna do you know uh so there's a bit of that later but as far as the 1984 movie goes yes absolutely he's completely focused because he has no choice uh, he he basically can become a lawrence of arabia type figure or perish yeah that's the genius of the plot i think is that it, it it's a very straight through line kind of plot like a hero's journey for paul and i'm sure that's what made has made the book so popular in a lot of ways is it's very you know we love those hero journeys and while the story itself is very complex as as victor kind of gave us just the beginning stages of it the the figure in the center and the hero in the center that we're following has one of those hero journeys that we all love Um, so i think that's a great concept of it yeah, it's it's very clear on its plot, uh, which is to it's a coming of age story for Paul. 
and it, it is throughout the entire narrative. Um, sometimes movies and plays lose sight of that, and they sort of see something else shining, and then the movie becomes about that. And uh, and I think that I always think that's a mistake. So let let's get into another concept for it, and or another inspirational source perhaps. And there's a lot of parallels drawn between the Byzantine Empire, and that's the Eastern Roman Empire, which at their power was the most powerful economic, cultural, military force in Europe. And of course, it ended with the fall of Constantinople. And so we see this theme or portrayal in a way in Dune. So, Victor, walk us through that. Uh, yeah, I think you you summarized it perfectly. Uh, actually, the yeah the Byzantine Empire definitely looks a lot like Dune in in certain in certain ways. I mean, there was Rome, which was the center of the Mediterranean world for thousands of years, and then um, it fell, and the civilizations of that area fell into the the Dark Ages, which is kind of like the the Dune world without the machines, and then out of that, out of the ashes of that, rose the, you know, the the noble houses, which is exactly what happened in the Byzantine Empire, and um, they became the landowners, and they were sort of balanced by the other two pillars of power, you know, the church in the case of the Byzantine Empire and the guilds of, you know, a conglomerated artisans and and a skilled workers uh and um in doing it's pretty much the same thing it's the bene Gesserit sisterhood for religion and the the guild navigators for transportation um and they they all kind of they kind of lean on each other um and rely on each other but also hate each other and try to steal power from one another whenever possible and that that sort of triumvirate of uh of forces comes in again and again in the dune series um especially in the first book you know what um it also and you got and tommy and wes are now petrified that i'm the first one talking after that statement but you know what all (laughs) it also reminds me of you know these big empires they would always expand and expand and their big downfall would always be that you can't there's a point to which you just don't have enough infrastructure to expand unless you're like killing off these entire like you know, cultures and civilizations. And so they would always end up ultimately failing. And it kind of, you know, watching the Dune, you know, kind of reminded me of that because the, you know, the Freeman, you know, are there and they're, you know, they're the people that, you know, they'd expanded too far. There was too much and they took advantage of an opportunity to, you know, kind of get their land back. So that's what it made me think of. Yeah, totally. All right, and then the final inspiration, and Victor, like you said, you've moved up to the Pacific Northwest, and I think uh, Herbert was actually also inspired to create the world of Dune in a 1957 trip to coastal Oregon. That's and right. the the uh, the book is considered like the the very first ecologically minded novels in the sci-fi genre. So anything extra to add here? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the reasons Dune is so relevant today is that it it really does uh, 
embrace all those concepts on a grand scale? Like, you know, how difficult would it be to terraform an entire planet in in Dune? Um, and that's uh, sort of uh, there, there's this group called the Fremen uh, in Dune that are uh, a, a native uh, people that live there in the harsh desert climate. But uh, one of their secret plans is that they've been uh, storing water for generations, uh, waiting to use that to terraform the planet in some way, to make it like Earth. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, you're absolutely right, Wes. The, the, yeah, I think that, that was the seed that probably started uh, Frank Herbert's sort of dreaming up the, the universe of Dune was he wrote this, uh, this nonfiction article about uh, sand dune erosion in, in Oregon, not too far from here. Yeah, I, I live in the, the strange high house in the mist. It's, it's uh, pretty much in the center of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dune is, uh, or uh, <laughs> I mean, Oregon is uh, about um, a three or four hour drive from here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And it inspired Herbert to, to write, who really wasn't that experienced in writing science fiction. Like he had written a few short stories and then all of a sudden Dune hit hit his brain and he was like okay i'm gonna write that and um there you go <laughs> it's now, unbelievable have you, have you actually have you been to like the oregon sand dunes and and went and walked around seen them in person yeah i have i have been up there my wife's family is from portland so um we've spent quite a bit of time around that around that area and it, it is really really cool um yeah if you go inland a little bit into oregon it's very it's a very sandy area like uh bend and and all those places are very pretty um which i I, you know david lynch the director of the 84 dune um mentions bend in uh twin peaks for some reason i don't know why (laughs) it's one of his favorite places well this is how down in the weeds i got on this because i was like what is the like i wasn't understanding why it was such a big deal to stabilize sand dunes i was like i don't i don't get this but it's basically the dunes, they 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 start to move, and it's almost like a wave crash. Sometimes they will move and kind of fall and crash down, and and it's almost like an area has been flooded with sand. And so to stabilize the dunes, they're like, you know, constructing fences and barriers and then trying to grow grass in them because that obviously stabilizes them and keeps them from moving so i know everybody just fell asleep with me saying that but i was just <laughs> like what is like i didn't understand so i had to look into it a little bit more yeah that's that's absolutely right that's true um and uh you know that if you just just think about you know what west just said that's why dune is so unformed when uh, when Paul and the Atreides land there at the beginning of the story of Dune, uh, because it's it, the the landscape's totally unreliable, and <laughs> it's crawling with giant monsters. <laughs> That's also a negative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I can't imagine where are they getting this. I don't know if this ruins a future novel, but where are they getting this unbelievable amount of water that they're planning to use to terraform an entire planet? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, But uh, the only thing that it details in the book is that when a person dies, uh, they have a transfer of water from the body. Because they're saying our water becomes your water. 
yeah they I always purify. thought it was just yeah i thought yeah. it was just in the uh like underneath the ground or something That's what that I may, maybe it. yeah that that would be maybe they're just emptying everybody's you know peace wetsuits you know into a big tank and <laughs> you know that's what's happening yeah could be um th- th- that's the that's the only thing they talk about in the book is um is the is the after death and it, it's um well I, you know maybe we'll get to this later but um it's a uh, a source of much friction between paul and the fremen uh, a, a little bit later in the story um i don't know if we want to get into spoiler territory in case somebody hasn't seen it uh but um just just give the spoiler warning just say hey i'm about to spoil some stuff so skip ahead 30 seconds and let's go to the let's go to the dune section and we'll just say that we're gonna yeah well i think we're close to the talking about the movie anyway so yeah 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 so but before we do that and and since i kind of uh, uh let me try to wake the audience back up after i put them to sleep talking about stabilizing sand dunes uh let's uh let's let's announce some winners so we're going to announce the first three winners from our The Great Escape giveaway, and we're going to do that right now. It's time to announce the winners of our Great Escape giveaway, and we're just going to do the first three winners right now, and we'll announce the other three later on. And on behalf of Real Talk, a movie podcast, I just want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy yourself. We hope you come back for future episodes. We also want to thank you for entering the giveaway contest at The Great Escape. So without further ado, let's announce these winners. So the first item that we're giving away was the Dreamscape Blu-ray from 1984. And that's going to be Mr. Kevin Coleman is the winner of that Blu-ray. Next item is going to be the Baby Yoda. And Baby Yoda is going to go to Miss Pearl Morgan. And then our final giveaway for this segment is the Gremlins 2 figure. And that's going to go to Shackle Diamond Ricks. We also want to note to each of the winners that you've got the next two weeks to claim your prize. Or we're going to have to draw some new winners. So you'll be able to pick up these prizes at the Great Escape store. Now what you'll want to do is show your ID whenever you pick up the items. They're not going to be mailing any of these items out. So again, you've got two weeks to go and pick up the item, bring your ID, and collect your prize. So I want to congratulate all three winners. We hope you enjoy these items. And again, thank you for listening to Real Talk, a movie podcast. Let's get into the movie, the 1984 movie, again, directed by David Lynch. And again, um, Victor, team and whomever, do you guys want to let's introduce this movie? Tell us a little bit about um, uh, Victor. Why don't you you kick us off? Tell us about your experience, because my understanding is you you saw this in theaters back in 84. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, Star Wars one and two had come out. So that that was sort of the what I was expecting out of this movie uh, and um and that's pretty much how it was marketed uh but i went with my dad probably what the producers were thinking too yeah they, <laughs> they were hoping it was going to be like another star wars uh and in some ways it is but um man I, I i just i had not read the book yet you know i was maybe 15 years old uh and um 
we walk into it, it was the Pickwood Theater in West Los Angeles, and um, the ushers hand everybody that's going in these one sheets that have like a bunch of terms on them, like Dune terms. And I'm like, are we supposed to memorize this before the movie? <laughs> like, what? what is this? Um, and I, I don't know what I did with mine, but uh, I, I sent you guys a photo that somebody took of theirs uh, a little bit earlier. Um, and uh, it's pretty, it, it's pretty um, inclusive <laughs> of everything. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. But, um, but yeah, so I sat down, I watched the movie, it kind of went over my head, you know, I like, I, there are certain parts of it that I really liked, especially the first half. Uh, I thought the build up, the introduction was really, really good. Uh, great cast, um, uh, a lot like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the, the, the way they handle the music is one unflagging theme that they just repeat over and over again. And they're both great. Like the Lawrence of Arabia theme is awesome. The Dune theme is awesome. The thing with with the the Dune movie is that in the middle of the sci-fi action saga, there is this sort of introspective spiritual saga that Paul goes through, and um, that's in the movie too. Uh, so um, yeah, I was I was pretty much uh, blown away by it. I, I liked it, but I really wasn't sure what was going on. I, I kind of got a general sense of the politics that was at play. Uh, but it wasn't until it came out on VHS and I saw it two or three more times that I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And that finally inspired me to go read the book. So I read the book about 10 years later. And then I, when I read the book, I had uh, David Lynch's casting choices in my mind as those characters, and it works great. Uh, and then when I read the book, I was like, oh, now I understand what's going on. Uh, and um, yeah, that was my Dune experience. <laughs> Team man, what what about you? What was the what's your your first memories of Dune and just kind of your your initial thoughts on the movie itself? Yeah, I mean, so I was really young when I first saw it, probably like early teens, because like I said, I know my dad's a huge fan of the book and movie. And so I watched it early and I didn't know what the heck was going on when I first saw it. I think like Victor, I was probably a little younger than Victor at that point. And there were a lot of parts that, you know, that were cool that I liked, you know, the sandworms and the action and the, just the grand scale of it. But once it got into like the hard sci-fi aspect of the guild itself and the Bene Gesserit and all of those different aspects, I was I was like, what is happening? But I think as I grew up and continued to watch the film, while the film doesn't actually makes a lot of sense, you, you see the basic structure outline and even in the second half which is like i feel like it's just a book like but like super condensed you you basically get the the through line and the plot line of it um and then when it comes to the actual movie itself i've always really liked it even knowing it has its faults and it's not perfect and it was critically it wasn't critically acclaimed by any means and it's kind of considered a bomb but there's just something about it that is very, I guess, entertaining. There's like an entertaining aspect to it while also like kind of being like a big swing. I've always enjoyed movies that are kind of bold and take a swing at something, even if it's not 
all the way successful. You know, some of my favorite movies are just those big epics, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Ben-Hur, the Lord of the Rings movies. I love those kind of big, bold films. And this movie is one of those. Honestly, had a huge budget. It's a swing by David Lynch. It may not be 100% successful in all aspects, but I think it does more right than than bad. And I would rather watch a movie like this that, you know, is one of those big, bold films that maybe is not 100% successful than a lot of other types of films that are maybe considered better in some ways. You know, like Fast 9. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm never watching that. <laughs> you know, Gabe, like, you were in the same boat with me. We just we we just recently watched this for the first time. So somebody who didn't grow up with it really, who literally just sat down and watched it recently, what were your initial thoughts? So my experience with it is like it's probably a little different from yours, Wes, because you want to get into that horror community. You want to get into all those horror movies. This is in my vein. Like, I've seen all the Lord of the Rings in the theaters. I've seen all the Star Wars. I get down these Star Trek wormholes, and I'll start watching the shows. Like, and I'll, you know, I like I said, I've watched all the Battlestar Galactica, and I love the politics in Battlestar Galactica. It's one of the things me and Tommy talk about the most. It's what makes it the best. I love the expanse. I love the politics in the expanse. And, the, and I think... I think Dune, you know what I think about Dune? So I've been trying to digest it because I was like, did I like Dune? But the reason I've never gone down it is because I'm like, I don't I don't know if I have time for this. Like, just being frank with you, I, I don't know if I have time. I've got a lot on my plate right now. And so, like, I was afraid I'd get too into it. And, like, last night I was like, man, that is one of the sci-fi, sci-fi things I've ever seen. I was like, I don't <laughs> – I was, like, t- trying to digest. I was like, did I like it? Was it too much? Like, I mean, was it too weird? And do I need to go down the weirding way to Dave, understand? Are you, are you the one? Are you the one they've been waiting for from I a sci-fi? I believe so. I believe I'm their. <laughs> they've been immigrant. waiting all this time for they, the one, the sci-fi nerd, to come I along. I gotta drink the water to see if I live. Hit. Like, y'all need to strap <laughs> me down. I'll drink the water. We'll see if I live because this is my. I think I think it, Victor's right though. It's gonna take me a couple more viewings because I didn't get all the politics like. Like, I want to watch it a couple more times, but I'm glad I've had the time that I've had since I watched it because I do think that I like it. And I think that I would like the book even more. I really do think I would like the book quite a bit more. And I like the themes. I, I do like all of the themes, the the political themes. I like the the, you know, what we're fighting over themes. I like the the resource themes. I like. I like the world and Victor did a better job explaining it. Like technology evolved so far than it turned. Then now this is re revamped technology or stuff saved from the past. I like, I got to watch it again, but my first experience, like it was weird, man. It was, this is the most, this this is super sci-fi. It's hardcore. Well, that's why I said like star Wars is not like real sci-fi. Star Wars is not hardcore. Yeah. When you talk about science fiction, now we're talking science fiction of like the true, like um, the great writers of science fiction, um, the great movies. This is like pure sci-fi. And I think that's why some people, when they first see it, it's a little, they're taken aback. They're like, oh, I wasn't, I'm not used to this type of sci-fi anymore because I think we've been so inundated with the kind of comic book version of science fiction over the past 30 years yeah. that when you actually go back to the roots of sci-fi and what the genre really is like gabe you said battlestar galactica like the the reboot of it that's real science fiction in my opinion uh 
it's a little bit different. And I think the Dune series and novel really captures that. Well, I think people like, and I'm sorry I'm using shows to explain this, but it, it's just easier for me because there's steps. Like, I think, like, the general audience is, like, lost as sci-fi. You know, that's a little bit science fiction-y, you know, but the general audience can watch it. But then they see, they're like, oh, but those ex- those Expanse people, those are people are kind of far out there. And then they're like, oh, well, those Battlestar Galactica people, those are some, those are some people that are way into some sci-fi. But then you step into Dune, and you're like, you're like 10 times beyond that barrier. So you've got to prep yourself <laughs> to step into Dune. Well, it's like, right, exactly. It's a good point. It's like real science fiction is is Isaac Asimov, you know, writing the iRobot series, that type of thing. And I'm, and I'm sure Victor can probably do a better job explaining this than me. But I think Dune is really considered in that world. And I think that's why when you first watch the movie out of the blue, like Wes and Gabe, you all did, I think it's kind of a shock to the system. Because we're not used to that level of science fiction anymore. But I do think I like it. Like that's what I, yeah, I, I like. As great. soon as it got done, I was like, I, I I liked the political stuff in. I like the, I like I was like I need a minute to digest it. It's a it's an odd film, but it's good. It is really good, and I think the new and I know we're going to talk about the new movie in a little bit, but I think the new movie is going to do even better. I haven't seen it, but I think it will do even better of setting up the world and setting up all of the rules of the science fiction world even better than this did because you, this movie is just such a condensed version of the book. Do you think this new movie will be odd to oddly striking though to the audience, or do you think it will be more widely acceptable? Like, because I I wonder I if think, it's going to be. In, I think there's oddly no striking mixed reaction, but I think we're going to talk about it a little bit. So save okay, that okay. thought, Gabe. Well, Timon, you did a perfect job of, of explaining exactly how I felt because before I started going down my wormholes with my research and looking into it, I just I just put the movie on. It's on HBO Go streaming right now. Our, uh, is that it? Is it HBO Go? What is it now? HBO Max. Max, oh, okay. Yeah. HBO Go. It doesn't even exist anymore. Anyway, uh, HBO Max, uh, is it's streaming on that right now. And I just sat down and, and started watching it. <laughs> and watched watched it through, you know, the two hour and fifteen minute movie, and I I probably mouthed WTF like a, a bunch like, of times. Were you like the lead character in a Clockwork Orange with the eyes like you know peeled open? <laughs> yeah. yeah, my wife kept coming in and and, and doing the eye droplets for me. <laughs> right, but yeah. but um, I, there's a couple of things I knew about it going in. I knew that it was, um, you know, kind of hardcore sci-fi. I knew that I probably wouldn't understand it the first time I watched it. But one thing I did see is that there was a bunch of hate for some reason about the opening monologue. And to tell you the truth, I actually liked it. I liked the opening monologue for the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought can it I, was can well I hit done on that? by oh, Madsen. Oh, go ahead, Gabe. While, while we're there, I got a couple other things I want while to While I'm interrupting you. I turned it off during the opening monologue the first time I saw it. So I lied to the audience. There was an experience. I turned it off. I have no idea why I did. I, it didn't bother me that much. In fact, it's better than Star Wars. You know, in Star Wars, you've got to read what's going up through the stars. You know, this yeah, is, it, has, yeah. it has an attractive lady just explaining to you everything you need to know. And then stars behind her. Same thing. I don't know why I turned it off. Yeah, I I think uh, the the Star Wars thing. I have read an interview with um, George Lucas and uh, Brian De Palma, where <laughs> George Lucas 
showed Star Wars to De Palma and a few of his friends, like Francis Ford Coppola and, and Steven Spielberg, I think, were, were in that room. And, um, and they were all like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's great, George. And, and De Palma was like, what the hell is that? Like, what, <laughs> you know, you got to give us something to explain everything beforehand. And that's when the like, the, the rolling crawl idea uh-huh. was was born. And in David Lynch's Dune, I just read that um, Lynch didn't want to have that uh, uh, Princess Irulan uh, giving you the exposition at the beginning, which is why it's um, a little bit funny in that her face just like appears in space and then fades out. And then she's like, oh, yes, one more thing. And then the face <laughs> comes back. It's almost like an inside joke um, without making fun of the film. Um that Lynch did to the producers, you know, uh, and of course, uh, <laughs> uh, their their relationship became very complicated later when they tried to release a longer version of the movie after they got him to choke down his three hour version <laughs> <laughs> for release. Um, but um, anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted too. So no, 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 we're 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 fine. Um, one one thing before we before we move on a little bit, I did want to uh, read was. Uh, I always thought Roger Ebert, uh, I read a quote by him after he saw Dune for the first time, and he said, It took Dune about nine minutes to completely strip me of my anticipation. The movie is a real mess, an incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I did not have those thoughts uh, as, as the credit rolled. He I think he's kind of notorious sometimes for uh, ripping up movies that eventually become cult classics. And then I think in reappraisals down the line, he changes his tune just a little bit. But I did think that was funny. So let's let's talk uh, a little Roger bit. Ebert's great movie series. Yeah, he's always reappraising yeah. his great movies. <laughs> yeah. Doing that. But hey, when you're seeing 400 movies a year, I guess, you know, yeah. he's like, uh, I miss a few every now and again. <laughs> that's true. That that that's a good point. So well, let's let's talk about a few aspects of the movie. I think one of the things that makes Dune very interesting is the production problems that it has gone through. It's actually called the Heaven's Gate of Sci-Fi with its uh, $40 million budget, which was actually the most expensive movie ever made at the time, and I think it made like 30 million back, so that was a pretty huge bomb. Uh, back in 1984, but um, what about uh, what about some of these production problems? Yeah, well, I, I've I've read that it was shot over three years in Mexico, uh, and um, that created all kinds of issues. Uh, that um, uh, well, I mean, one of the problems is that it was massively hot, uh, and they also had a a bunch of extras and the main actors in these uh, still suits, which were also insanely hot to to wear. Uh, so it was an endurance test for especially the older actors uh, that were wearing these things. And um, they had to keep them hydrated. And, uh, you know, it was they were really on a racket. <laughs> they just look hot. Don't they have the scenes? They look worn out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they do. Up. Um, then there's the problem of the internal dialogue, which is all over the book. And I, I think that one of the main problems with Dune 1984 is um, 
is that the you know maybe Lynch was trying to be a little too faithful to the book uh, in in giving us the characters' thoughts, but the whole first half of the movie, like half of it, is just an actor staring into space, and then he voices the, the actor voices over what the character's thinking. I I, I don't know. I, I I'm sure the new movie is not going to do that, but um. They they have to find very creative ways to tell the story without those thoughts because they're very important uh, to the story. So I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. Victor, um, didn't yeah. you say that uh, a drinking game you could do is basically uh, drink every time someone gives one, one of those inner monologues? <laughs> yeah. And you'll be yeah. and you'll be done by like half hour in. Half hour in, yeah. There, there is so much. Like, if, if uh, anyone listening out there, if you just want to see, you know, the 1984 Dune movie, um, you know, in front of the new movie, and you haven't read the book and you don't know much about the series, um, you know, what you really need to pay attention to is kind of the first ten minutes. Like, that's when all the characters are sort of giving different sides of the exposition of the whole plot that's going to unfold throughout the movie. So after the first 10 minutes, you can relax. But if you're playing the Dune drinking game, then <laughs> good luck. Because, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I looked it up I, one at day. At first, I thought that they were talking via like telepathy, and then we could hear it. And then I realized it was just their thoughts. It's like, an interesting okay. choice. It really is. Like you said, Victor, it, it's they kind of were too, they were almost too uh, faithful to the book. And I've read that also, that a lot of people think that, the movie's almost too faithful in that way. Whereas, you know, maybe they convinced the other parts of the book too much. And it's kind of one of those things where it helps you understand a lot of what's going on in the movie, but it it just, from a movie perspective, like it's not the um, best, like it just doesn't work as well from a movie perspective. I don't think like you almost, you need it because half the time you're like, what is going on? And then like Paul out of the blue will be like, I am the one or like, you know, (laughs) the sleeper must awaken. And it's like, but then half the time you're even like, I don't even know what that means. So (laughs) then it maybe throws you off even more. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the reasons now, I mean, one of the things that, Everybody listening should probably um, kind of putting this in context. The the late 70s were a time in Hollywood of sort of auteur directors like Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola. Those guys were doing unbelievable stuff in movies that no one had ever done before. So when the producers of Dune got the rights to the book, which everybody told them was unfilmable, um, and it, it probably was, you know, in, in those days – uh, they zeroed in on David Lynch because he had he was just an he had just become a superstar with I mean he did Eraserhead as sort of a student film and that led him to do The Elephant Man which was a huge success it won Oscars uh, and so they're like man this is the guy like you know he he really uh, can he can do other worlds and and stuff really well and he's really deep and and he was really into uh, Transcendental Meditation, which has a lot of similarities to in real life, which has a lot of similarities to the perception uh, expansion that Paul goes through in Dune. Um, and that's probably what attracted him to the project. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think anybody else could have done it. I mean, there, there were other attempts at, at 
making Dune, but it never got past the sort of the early production stage. Let me ask the let me ask the whole group a question, and this is just a group question. Do you think it was directed well? Uh, I think it has its moments, definitely. I think what hurts Dune ultimately, and I'll, that's what I was going to say to Victor, and it goes to your question too, Gabe. I think is that, um, and I think this is where the new movie is trying to correct that is, it cannot be done in the time span that they tried to do it in, and so. If there are issues with the direction, and I think you really see that in the second half, possibly, yeah. is it as much an issue with the direction, or does it, is it as much as do, an issue with them trying to cram in a book, a movie or book that really should be five hours at least in length mm-hmm. in a two hours, 15 minutes movie, and then you see all the cutting, and the plot then just kind of becomes, doesn't make as much sense. Um, versus is it really the issue with the direction? So I think it's a great question, Gabe. Um, so I, I think it is well-directed at, de- at definitely during parts of the movie, for sure. Yes. Uh, yeah. If it, I talk about my favorite sequence, I think the beginning is directed fantastically, but I agree with what you said, Tommy. Like, there's an end sequence where there's an action scene going on with people riding a worm while there's a there's a love-making scene, like, going on over top <laughs> yeah. of it. Well, and I was like... <laughs> By the end, I know we're about on? to get into our. I know we're about to get into our favorite scenes, but like towards the end of the last thirty minutes, I almost feel like David Lynch is just like, screw it, put all the montages in. I want all my stuff in. You know, I want everything. And the editor's like, what do you mean? He's like, I want it all. And they just go crazy like, in the last thirty scenes minutes. At once up on on the screen, yeah. I was like, okay. Like, He's like, I want five scenes going on at once. I want the hand. I want that one shot of the hand over and over and over again. I mean, it's it, but it, in a way, for it's not the right way to do Dune. I don't think at I all. I think it, I don't like, know. I think it is like, like the more. Let, let, let me just say this real quick. Okay. I think the reason it kind of works though is it gets you into the, uh, and I think Victor just hit it right on the head of what Paul is going through from his mind perspective. He, you know, he's becoming the one he take the, he took the water and then it's almost like you've taken the spice yourself and there's something <laughs> with what's happening towards the end of Dune. So while it's not exactly what you want in a way, it kind of works. And that's what I've always said about the movie. It's not perfect, but there's something about it that I like. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, well, I think, uh, you know, David, I'm a huge David Lynch fan, and uh, I think that he, the one thing that he has that very few directors have is he knows how to get the best out of actors, especially in weird scenes, like weird situations that are almost unexplainable. Like, I, I don't know how he does that, uh, but um, yeah. the performances in, in even his TV stuff is, are, are they're incredible. And um, I think that that he definitely brought that to Dune, and and you can see most of that in the first half of the movie. Um, yeah, I mean there there are a lot of great actors, although it's relative unknowns to American audiences, which is another weird uh, fact about about Dune. Um, but yeah, I I think that they they really um, they really emote very well. Um, the thought thing is a little strange, uh, but. You know, who knows if the rest of the film had been a home run, then maybe people would be making movies like that from that point forward. You never know. Right. 
that's a good point. And uh, I did have a little story talking about, you know, the production problems and you guys have kind of highlighted some of those and then kind of the production problems, how they found their way onto the screen. Um, there, of course, was uh, like a crew of 1,700 that worked on this. There was like 80 sets, 16 sound stages. I just can't imagine being the director, you know, which is basically the general manager of a of a movie set with all this going on. So Francesca Annis, who plays Lady Jessica, she tells this story. And let me read it real quick because I, I got a kick out of it. She said that um, I had an, an experience on set with an actor who was absolutely appalling to me and verbally abusive in a particular scene when I was just standing next to the camera. I wasn't even in the scene with him. It was his close up and he just went completely berserk at me. And then after he had verbally abused me for however long it was, he suddenly said the one line that he had to say. We took the scene about 30 times mm -hmm. and I gradually got used to his method of being insane and then just saying his one line. So I said to Sean that evening, I said, what what on earth was that? She said to me, oh, no. Where I went, we are taught it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing around you. You have to make your mark. All that matters is that you make your mark. And I said, so why was he doing it 30 times? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he got a kick out of that. I thought that was funny. And then that right there was just some of the, the craziness that was going going on during the, the production of the film. Yeah, I, I think another, you know, sort of kudo I wanted to to you know, give to Lynch is that nobody worked on the film longer than he did. And uh, unless you count Frank Herbert that wrote the, the book, but um, he was in, he was working on the script and in pre-production all the way to final for three years. And uh, I never read anything from anybody in, involved in the movie that, that was like he lost his cool or he started to get turned into a, a real, um, you know, uh, like really an animosity towards the towards the production or anything. He kept that all inside, like a good director does. <laughs> it, it it probably harmed him, um, but he always made it as good a place to work as he possibly could. And uh, I I think if he hadn't, that we just never would have seen it. Like it it never would have been finished, and it would have been you know stored on the shelf somewhere in Universal on the Universal lot. No, that's a good point. Very good point. So before we, we move on from and, and get into like a few scenes that we like, is there anything that y'all wanted to say about the the cast, the different versions of the film, the music, anything like that? Well, isn't it done by Toto? Because yes. Toto. I freaking love the song <laughs> Africa. Like as soon as that popped up, I was like, and then, you know, throughout the film, I was like, yeah, this is Toto. I can totally hear it. Well, and it's Toto and then Brian Eno, who's, of course, one of the great music producers. Um, yeah. He uh, did the lead uh, song, which is kind of the theme, I think, which is excellent, like Victor said. Yeah, that yeah. um, plays over and over. Yeah, I love the music. That's one thing I've always remembered. That's a great call I gave is that, like, I've always, whenever I think of Dune the movie, one of the things I think about is the music. The theme is great. And then when they're just riding on those sandworms and the electric guitar comes in, yes. it's like, this is what I'm talking about. If the movie doesn't have that new electric guitar in here, it's going to be a failure. I'm just saying. 
There's yeah, nothing it, like riding on a sandworm with an electric guitar blaring <laughs> while making out to a chick overlapping on top of that. When you're I, becoming uh, a god. I mean, who doesn't want that? I know. I totally <laughs> agree with you guys. I, I hadn't really seen that picture to music combo until Mandy, like a couple of years ago. Like they do kind of something similar there, but um, but yeah, yeah, they it's, it back. yeah. yeah <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, the music's great. That's one thing that's awesome. And then I think another thing that's really great about the, the movie West, and I know you kind of mentioned some things there, is just the production design within the film itself. It really pops out that they spent a ton of money on this movie, and it's it's just so well-crafted. Like, even though we complained about it, I think especially towards the second half, the the plot becomes very jumbled, but just how it looks just the, the the care and craft they put into it all the different worlds i mean the baron himself with just how he looks him flying around i mean it's just stuff out of your nightmares yeah. so i think they've done such a good job so those are the things i always think about would do not the plot necessarily it's those other things, the music, the acting, like you said, Victor, the the production design, just the, you know, the weirding way, uh, gun, you know, those things. I love all those aspects of it. Well, T-Man, you brought up the costumes and uh, I, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this as well. And another movie that's that's like really sci-fi ish is Dark City that came out in 1998. Oh, yeah. And I. I kind of feel like the beginning scenes, some of the beginning scenes there, those costumes had to inspire the, I don't even know what that the the race or, or clan of people were called in Dark City, but I was yeah. getting some some big Dark City vibes. I think that's a great call out. Yeah, I didn't even think about yes. that. But I think you're now thinking about it. You're exactly right. They they literally just kind of copied some of those aspects to it, and that's where I think this movie is also kind of. Su- influential in that way you know blade runner is always considered one of the most influential science fiction movies especially from the early 80s dune in its own way is is probably pretty influential too um because there's just so many aspects i mean who can forget sting coming out in a leather or in a in a silver underwear <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I, i've dated a couple of a uh, couple of women that have that have commented on that like i, I was like oh dune blah 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 and, and she's like yeah sting in that underwear okay yeah 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 i mean i i don't know how they got sting in this movie or what they're but it is just a genius level casting like i love so much he's i don't know if i've ever seen him in anything else yeah i've seen him in a couple of things he's okay i i I think this is probably my favorite role of his and uh the maybe it's I don't know. I mean, I think he hits the character pretty well. And and the fact that he just looks awesome stepping out of the steam bath is that tells a lot about the character. I think the new movie is going to do that a lot. Like, I'm not going to say it has a lot of people stepping out of steam baths, but it it tells the story visually. Like, you understand when you see Sting appear and say nothing and just pose there that he is like this physical specimen. That's part of the character. Um that he has the sardonic look on his face. That's part of the character. And that the Baron is super attracted to him. That's really big part of the Baron's character and their struggle um, in, yeah. in Dune. So it, it it's, that tells volumes. 
Uh, that's a good point. Like all of those different aspects, especially the Harkins, uh, totally mis- mispronounced that, but um, you know, though the bad guys within the Dune world, they're so like, they do such a great job of making them like so disgusting and, and evil. And like, you're just repulsed by them basically truly repulsed. And that that's a great, they just do a, such a great job with that. And I think those are the aspects of Dune that I've always really enjoyed. Like we've talked about, even if there's aspects of the plot that you're not even following, there's all these other great elements of the movie that I really appreciate. I mean, you've got Patrick Stewart and Max, Max von Sydow just in small roles, great actors just popping up. Yeah. So why don't we finish the movie discussion just with some of the your your favorite scenes or what do you think are the best scenes of the film? Man, well, one of my one of my favorite scenes is in the very very beginning, like the, the not the opening dialogue, but the first actual scene in the Emperor's throne room when the uh, ambassador from the Spacing Guild comes in, and it's just like this train of uh, this machine, this huge machine that has has him floating in uh, spice gas, and uh, these are like the guild navigators look monstrous, but they are humans that have been mutated with constant bombardment by spice, and they're they're like their brains have become totally overdeveloped, their bodies totally underdeveloped, uh, and the the way the the guild people look like um, they're there's like a guy sweeping up the slime from the yeah. <laughs> the machine in the background. And they have like this old timey <laughs> radio that translates um, this first stage navigator to uh, to the emperor because he doesn't even speak, you know, the common language or whatever. It's English in the movie. But but I mean, you know, he he's like has this guttural uh, dialect and then it comes out. <laughs> It comes out of the translator as this really harsh robotic voice. And I love that because it's like they they already are here to tell the emperor what to do. Like that's how powerful they are. So I, I love that scene. On that, my, my scene kind of comes like right next. So I'm going to uh, say what it is. So I like how they develop Paul. Like it's not really a specific scene. I just like how they develop him like early in. And I'll, I'll talk to you about what I'm what I'm kind of talking about. I, there's the uh, wonderful CGI knife fight, um, but you're like, man, this guy's battle trained. Then there's that really good robot on human battle. Um, that's that old like antique robot battle. Oh, and yeah. then then you get you know like, I mean, by the way, the only thing that can make these chicks hotter is if they were all bald and I'm glad they were in this movie. So that, that was really good. But, but then you get my (laughs) favorite part of the sequence of the development of Paul. There's that, there's that box that he has to stick his hand into and you're like, what's going to happen. And you can see his hand burning and the lady's looking at him and he's like seeing how long and he's like, he lasted longer than anybody else. So you know that you've got this combat trained, you've got this guy who's got this, who's, basically been developed and groomed his whole life and uh and i like the idea of that burning box you know i'm gonna start doing that at my job interviews like if when people get hired like if you make it past two minutes get yourself a desk but but i do seriously like the development of of the of the guy like because you're like man this guy's pretty cool and then you learn later he's the ultimate cool but because he's riding a worm with heavy metal playing and everything but you know 
No, those, that, I, that's one thing I was going to say, Gabe. That's a great call out about just the, the development of Paul and just the scenes building him up. And you get a lot of the internal dialogue there. But I think a lot of that works quite well. And you're you're kind of seeing it. And then they, of course, then they get into Arrakis. I think that's all really well done, all of that explaining. And then one scene I really like is just the battle sequence where uh, the, you know, the Atreides family is betrayed. Uh, the Baron and his forces come in with the Emperor's support. They get the shield down and uh, oh, yeah. there's just a like big battle. And that's a really awesome scene. Just a great battle sequence. But I've got to I've got to ask you all one thing, though. I don't know about these battle uh, strategy that the Atreides family uses because they literally just run out like in columns with no like strategy or tactics. And then you've got <laughs> um, Patrick Stewart, one of the lead characters. I think he is Gunny. Um, is that his name, Victor? I think it's uh, uh, G- Gurney. Yeah, Gurney. Yeah, Gurney. He has his dog. Did you? He has the dog. On yep. his chest. Yeah, he, he's running. I, I was watching that. And I was like, that pug is not battle ready. It's awesome. <laughs> he's like, for the, for the trainees. I mean, what is he doing with that dog? I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that that's just meant to show that uh, Patrick Stewart is into protecting the the ideals of House Atreides. And you see those dogs, like those dogs are, are sort of like royalty dogs um, because they appear a couple of times in the movie. But isn't it like, don't you think that's going to hurt his battle like techniques? He's literally holding the dog with one hand. Well, the, the building is exploding in the background. Maybe he's trying, like, I agree with what Victor's saying. He's probably trying to save it from. All right. Well, I, people do crazy things in, in chaotic, like, I think that the, the Atreides warriors that come spilling out of the building, like they, they just think that they're dead. And they're like, right. well, yeah. we're going to go down fighting. You know? Yeah, I like – no, I love that whole sequence. I, I finally understood – I never understood – this is probably the first time I've realized it – that they keep talking about this new battle strategy they have, the weirding way with the sound. Right. And I never understood why they didn't use that in the battle, but then they show that the modules are getting burnt. And yeah, so, they show that later. Yeah, yeah this is where – I've realized like the more you watch this movie, there is a lot of stuff they put in there really fast. And I think that's where, once again, they're trying to condense this book into this movie. And so they're cramming so many different things in there. Another aspect of that battle that I really like, well, first off, you know, I was just laughing myself thinking, so Patrick Stewart's coming out there, uh, one of our great Shakespearean actors. And he's like, I've, I've done Hamlet. I've done Macbeth. I'm running out in this battle with this dog strapped to my chest. (laughs) (laughs) I was laughing about that. And then the other thing I was enjoying in the battle is that what is, up with all these like soldiers just jumping up in the air and they're like flipping them over Did y'all notice that <laughs> yeah yeah I, yeah i think that's supposed to be the like the emperor's troops the sardukar are uh like their strength is super jacked on drugs and uh oh, that's why okay. they can they have like the strength of 10 men and that that was sort of a weak visual storytelling attempt to tell you that detail right i think See, Victor, that's why we have you on here. Because I was just like, why are they just flipping around? That doesn't make any sense to me. But now, as you explain it, I think what that shows, honestly, is David Lynch is not – he's never been known as like an action director. You know, he's not known as like a, a set piece guy. And those are – even though I love the battle, 
it, it could have been a lot better if you had like Steven Spielberg directing it from a action set piece perspective. Yeah. But um, now that makes a lot of sense. But overall, a really good battle sequence. So that is definitely one sequence I loved. Can I tell you guys where, what drew me over the line? Because I, I, I feel like it's critical for Victor to hear. What made it, like, too sci-fi for me? Like, mm-hmm. the section that did is, number one, that floating fat man. Like, every scene, the floating fat guy was on the, the screen. The Baron. Like, I even, at the, the end, they even, they even say, bring that floating fat guy. And nobody's, like, wondering who they're talking about. They know it's the Baron. They're <laughs> like, bring that one dude. Because you can't forget him. So that put me over the edge. And then there was this one guy, I forgot what his name is, Tiberius. I forget, I'll think of his name later. They, they imprison him and they say the only way to stay alive is to milk this cat in a tan, in a like little portable tanning bed. And, yeah. <laughs> and I was sitting there, I was like, all right, this is too sci-fi. This is where, this is where I draw the line like this yeah. and that fat floating guy. Like that's where they probably lost some of their viewership. Yeah. Oh, the, it's awesome. But, but I just like the Baron. Like, that's what I was thinking today. I was like, do I love the Baron? I think I do. I think yeah. he he's, he's a like fantastic character. character. You're so beautiful, Baron. He's like picking at his sc- You're so beautiful. I love that sequence. Yeah, the, the, the backstory to that is um, the, the Baron. I don't, I don't know if this is for Why is, could this, he fly? is this podcast for all audiences or is it mature? Well, <laughs> yeah, Why I don't know. Go for it. Go for I'll, it. I'll, I'll, edit, I'll, I'll self-edit. Yeah. So the Baron gets um, gets that horrible disease on half of his body um, because he goes up against the Bene Gesserit sisterhood in the sisterhood's attempt to manipulate bloodlines. They force the Baron to get together with uh, one of them, like one of the Bene Gesserit sisters. I think it's the main one. I think it's uh, Gaius. Helen Mohiam, the you know the uh, Sean, uh, what's what's the actress's name? But she's great. She's a, she's yeah, also she's a Shakespearean actress. Yeah, Sean Phillips, and um, and uh, you know because of because of that, he takes retribution against them, and they inflict him with that horrible disease. And and apparently he's like a super slim, good-looking like young character at that point and that's when he starts to to get incredibly obese and then he needs the the anti-gravity stuff to get around um but the baron has always been this supreme like ego-driven intellect uh and i don't know if that comes across that well in the movie although i do love uh ken mcmillan's rabid performance of him like it's it's believable that he's moving the universe to get you know to get at his enemy um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's why he's got the disease. Uh, <laughs> that's good but, to know. I never knew that either, actually. No, and actually, actually I, I don't think sense. it comes across as he's now that you say that, I can see what you're saying. Cause there are sequences where he's like, you don't need to know. I'll, I'll tell you when you need to know the plot, but he comes more across as like just a raving sociopath. That's what I've always viewed him as. It's yeah. just like a pure sociopath that is just pure evil and crazy, basically. Yeah, in the book, he's more of a level-headed sociopath that's pure evil. Ah, interesting. But yeah, yeah. I like what you said. That performance is is rabid. 
Okay. Yeah, it's it really stands okay. out. You really did good on that. Can you give me the backstory of milking the cat in the portable tanning bed? No, that that is not. I I don't think that's in the book. That's that's Lynch, man. Um, <laughs> that's like, Lynchian. That, it, it is so weird, like that. Um, he's got that special room for him, and he's all tied. Up. First of all, how is the guy gonna milk the cat when he's all shackled up? Like, this doesn't make sense. But the it fact does. that the cat. Like it's that super lean variety of cat, and there's a mouse in there with it. Like it's like what, 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 it what is this? It was the side of the cat. Yeah, like, but, and it was one of those like shaved cats. I was like, I was like, yeah, is this a theme? He likes his women shaved heads, cats. Oh. Shaved. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's what you know, I think. That's what is so interesting about the film is it's this weird combination of Frank Herbert's world. Plus David Lynch with all of his weird stuff, all of his eccentricities and his like love of like machinery and the weird sounds he does in, on the audio. Mm-hmm. And that's what I I'm like saying. Like the audio, even by the third and, and towards the end, it's like full blown Lynch. Cause he's just like, screw it. Nobody's following this plot anyway, put it all in there. And it, you're getting like, montages upon montages and like all sorts of weird lynchian things and you're almost in that trance by that point i, I liked it uh, the more I, and i liked your explanation it's like we're on the melange like i i mm-hmm. didn't even think of that that makes me like it more yeah that makes sense and then i don't know if anybody else has any other favorite scenes but i have a couple more unless anybody else I, I, i've got one more my my absolute favorite scene in in the movie is um there's a scene that now uh the baron is part of uh, house harkonnen which uh their sort of way of doing things is to be as inhuman and brutal as possible and therefore you know sort of cow anyone who would oppose them into uh, running away or or serving them um, and the Atreides uh, way of doing things is honor. And they, they figure like, well, if we're always honorable, people will be attracted to our banner because they know we're like upright people. But they're they're all humans and they all want to win. Um, but there's a scene where the, the Duke of House Atreides is captured and he's brought in front of the Baron and um, the Duke starts crying. And the Baron is so inhuman um, with his Harkonnen training that he turns to his assistant and he's like, he's crying. What does that mean? Um, and I, I just, do I, like that. Yeah. I love that because you can interpret it. Like he just doesn't understand what crying is. That's how, you know, in, incredibly inhuman he is, or he's trying to find some hidden meaning behind the weeping that he doesn't understand and he needs to understand it either way it works, but that's my favorite scene. That's the tooth scene, right? When he's going the tooth, remember the tooth. Yes, that's the tooth scene. Yeah. Oh, that's a great sequence too. Another Lynchian type thing coming out. Yeah, that's a great. That's another great sequence. I was just gonna say I, my last favorite sequence is you know the, the the second half of the movie we've already talked about it quite a bit where it kind of it definitely becomes builds towards a lot of different things are happening. Paul is becoming figuring out he's going to be the one that you mentioned earlier, Victor. Um, he drinks the water of life. The sleeper must awaken. But I love the end secret. I just love the whole end battle where he rides the worm. Mm, yeah. You, know, you got the Freeman on there. They they're finally ready for battle and Cheers you've got the music, the electric guitar is banging. And then 
<laughs> yes. they, they come into the emperor the emperors come and- i like that the i like that the main like the main emperors or the the rulers are the ones operating the heavy machine <laughs> yes, gun. that's what i was yeah. gonna say Gabe. oh what is that <laughs> i'm sorry tommy we have the same brain I don't, no, no, I'm glad you said it. It's like I don't understand what is happening there. Like literally, the, the emperor is like, you know what? They have right, battalions God, and battalions, and they're the ones left to do this. Jump on our guns. That makes no sense. But mm-hmm. I love that whole thing. And then, of course, the final fight with with Sting, and mm-hmm. just that whole end sequence, and he finally becomes the one. It's just awesome. I love it. Oh, you know, uh, yeah, one thing I wanted to say about the fight between um, uh, Paul and uh, Fade, who's the that's the character that Sting plays. Um, yeah, uh, is is that um, the Fade is supposed to be uh, what, what was supposed to happen. The, the, what the Bene Gesserit sisterhood wanted to happen was um, that Paul's mother would give birth to a daughter and that daughter would be married to Sting. And. Wow they would produce the Kwisatz Haderach, you know, the super, the super being. Um, but because uh, the Lady Jessica, you know, Paul's mother gave birth to Paul first, um, that gave him sort of an in to be, to be the one. So Sting is so, is like, you know, his character Fade is so accomplished he's basically an opposite version of paul like he's had all the same super expensive training like he's you know trained his mind and his body are all super developed and um this is like uh, you know if paul had been born a girl they they would have been married they would have been a couple but instead they're fighting to the death which is it's awesome <laughs> yeah that's a good clarification of that i don't think i knew all those aspects it makes a lot of sense now honestly too and it's just great you know you've got sting overacting to the get to the you know top of of the earth there and you got kyle mclaughlin who we haven't really mentioned talked much on him but i just gotta shout out his performance i think it's actually pretty good honestly yeah. i've always liked him as uh paul atreides so yeah great great end sequence in my opinion it's a tough it's a tough role i mean he has the whole movie on his shoulders for about half of it and pretty much uh on half of his shoulders for the first half and yeah, sure. um Super young. I mean, I think Paul's supposed to be about 15 or 16 in the book, um, but uh, Kyle McLaughlin was like 22, I think, and he was doing some Shakespearean stuff here in Seattle when they found him, and they were like, yeah, that's the guy. And I think they were right. I can't think of anybody better for, for that role. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. No, he he did. He did. He really did do a good a good job. And I, you guys have talked about like all the stuff that I like, so I, I don't have anything to add. But um, before we move into our last section, uh, is there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about with the 84 film? No, the only thing I'll say is that I think we've said it all. But if you haven't seen it, give it a shot, but be prepared for something very unusual. But if you have an open mind, I think you'll really enjoy it. I agree. Completely agree. And I agree as well. So we have a clean sweep across the panel. And so let's uh, announce the last three winners of the Great Escape Real Talk of Movie Podcast giveaway. All right, it's time to give away the last three prizes and including our grand prize. So our first winner for this section is going to be Mr. Daniel Hodges. He has won an 
autographed copy of guest host Victor Rodriguez, The Sound of Fear. The $25 gift card, that's going to go to Mr. Preston Driver. And the grand prize winner of the $50 gift card is going to go to Alan J. Whittinghill. So again, we want to thank everyone for participating in this giveaway. We hope you enjoy these prizes. And for the three gentlemen who won the items in our second section, again, you've got two weeks to go to The Great Escape, bring your ID, and collect your prize. All right, guys, we're back for our last segment here. And, you know, there's more than just the book. There's more than just the 84 movie. There's a whole lot of other adaptations of Dune. So let's talk about a few of those, and then we'll get things wrapped up. And, Victor, do you want to kick us off? I know there's a a ton of different things. So what's uh, one thing that you wanted to talk about? Um, well, yeah, one one thing uh, that I think would be cool for everybody to know are the the attempts to make Dune before they tried to get David Lynch to do it. Um, and there, I, I just read today that uh, there was an attempt to get David Lean, the producer or the, the director of Lawrence of Arabia, to do Dune. And he in the mid 70s sometime or the early 70s, maybe. Uh, and he refused. I'm not sure why, um, but uh, that that fell apart. But the probably the most famous attempt to make it before the Lynch version was uh, uh, this uh, Mexican director named uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct, um, but uh, he was mostly known for cult movies, kind of like David Lynch. He directed El Topo before that. That was a pretty big midnight sensation in in uh, the U.S. And uh, he was super into the source material into Dune. And there is a documentary mo- movie made about him trying to make Dune in the late 70s. Uh, and it's called Hodorowsky's Dune, and the movie was made in 2013. It's a great, great documentary. I highly recommend it, uh, and it also illustrates better than anything I can think of what a leader has to do when he's attracting talent to a project, like all the different hats that um, Alejandro wore to get key key players into the uh, into the production. Like he had to do different things to to please these massive egos that he wanted involved in his project so it's really cool uh but yeah they 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 tried twice before (laughs) before 84 and um that uh that kind of blew my mind so there's that well i think what they were trying to do is that he wanted it to be a 10-hour feature yes and they had set a budget for it just even before they really got going, he already started chewing up big portions of the budget. So think obviously, you know, uh, Hollywood's uh, the big studios are are really not into taking a lot of risks. They want to see return on their investment, which kills art in a, in a lot of cases. Yeah. But um, I know that that was one problem, and of course he was—he just refused to compromise on the runtime, and so I know that was a big reason that it, it didn't get made. Right. But what I do understand about his attempts is that the storyboards, the script, the concepts—they had sent them out to a bunch of 
major studios. Well, however you you said his last name, I thought it was Jaworski, but uh, that's not right. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> those uh, the team that he built to help him design, uh, one of them was H.R. Geiger, who, of <laughs> course, he designed the Xenomorph for Alien. Oh, and yeah. We talked about that in our, our Alien episode, and he was part of that creative team behind it. And so these concepts and stuff that they sent out stuck around for years with all of the major studios. And then, of course, the belief is that movies like Star Wars, Terminator, and The Fifth Element, they all borrowed from their original concepts that were set up for Dune. Wow. You you blew my mind. I, I never made that connection, but now that you mentioned that, The Fifth Element looks a lot like – Hodorowski's storyboards for Dune. And I think he also, of course, you were talking, Victor, about the big personalities. Mick Jagger was supposed to be in this. The right. soundtrack was going to be done by Pink Floyd. And then I know there were a bunch of, uh, you know, famous actors of the day and descendants of of famous actors that were supposed to be in it. So it was, uh, was going to be quite an undertaking. And I think... In the sci-fi community especially, there's a lot of regrets that this whole thing didn't come to fruition. It is sad, and and the, I'm glad The Fifth Element got mentioned because it reminds me the most, I think, of The Fifth Element. But it's even weirder, guys, so you got to prep yourself. you got to prep yourself, and I love The Fifth Element, but this is weirder. I <laughs> wish it would have been made – I mean, it's got the weirding way, guys. It's yes. Very, so it's. Yeah. I wish it would have gotten made. <laughs> yeah, it would have been awesome. Ten hours. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd, I'd see it. I'd see it, but uh, I don't, I don't know if it really would have been good. Uh, you know, if they had done it, if they had found the money or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what you guys just said. I mean, there's, there's this French sci-fi aesthetic that you know you can find in Heavy Metal magazine and The Fifth Element and, uh, and also in the storyboards to Dune. And a lot of it's, there's this famous French concept artist, um, Jean Giraud, I, I believe I'm saying his name right, but um, he's also known as Mobius. Uh, I think he's dead now, but um, he it ha- has done so much great art. And he teamed up with uh, Hodorowski writing to do graphic novels when Dune didn't get made. And those graphic novels are pretty much what he would have done with Dune, and they're great. Yeah, I've seen some of the artwork just from the the steel shots, and it's like really crazy stuff. On the book itself, you've completely convinced me. Like, I'm for sure gonna read the book. And would you read the sequels? Uh, yeah, I, I'd read the first three books for sure. Um, after that, you're kind of taking your chances, but they're they're good. Um, they're just they get very conceptual and even weirder as they they get further like the last i think there's six books maybe and the last two take place like ten thousand more years after dune takes place so so none of the same characters no none of the same characters they're like descendants of descendants and yeah some even some of the the the, the pillars of power in the old empire have fallen and replaced with other stuff and it's it's just amazing how he just keeps recreating the universe yeah, I've always read the first. I think, like you said, the first, at least the first two are really good. Yeah. And then, 
and then kind of you know as most things do you know it's hard to keep that that plot line going really well um the something that i was going to shout out is the 2000 i think it's 2000 or 2003 i got my years let me look here the miniseries yeah the miniseries from 2000 2000 2003 so the original the first miniseries is 2000 they did a sequel but it was originally aired on the sci-fi channel uh back when it was titled sci and it was that they actually did like real sci-fi on the show and I, i gotta say it's actually pretty good it it's a lot more faithful, I guess you could say, to the book because it just has a longer runtime. I think that's exactly what we've talked about with this version is you can tell a lot of it's been condensed where the miniseries, it's a three part. Um, it's 265 minutes, so it's a lot longer. I mean, the special effects are not what we're used to. It's a it's a TV miniseries from the early 2000s, but it does have a really good cast. I mean, William Hurt's in it. Um mm-hmm. Some really good actors. Um, Alec Newman is the lead. You know, John Alec Newman is the lead guy who's actually quite good in it. So if you really kind of, I, I was going to say, if you want to watch another version of Dune, but you've got to kind of realize that what you're going to watch is like a made-for-TV version. But if you really kind of just want to get into the world and kind of get all the political stuff and all I the do. dramatic stuff, it, it's worth watching. I think. Can watch it now. Like, do you know if there's any? I, well, Gabe, I actually have the DVD version of it, so. Um, oh, I can I'll, borrow those from you, like we borrowed Wes's Mystery Science yeah. Theater. I'll give that right back to you. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, it's my dad's <laughs> version. It's my dad's copy. So no, I that. like him. I actually. I, <laughs> if it was my idea, see, that's my way. That's what I'm gonna start doing. Uh, I'm gonna just tell people it's my uh, my family's copy because those are still mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just wanted to add that, uh, Tommy. The 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 Children of Dune miniseries, which came a couple of years later, I think is even better than than the Dune miniseries in that it they really do a great job of summarizing the second and third books, uh, and 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 all that stuff's not in the '84 Dune movie. So, if you if you're not interested in reading the novels, that would be the way to go for those. Yeah, good call out. Well, gentlemen, for Tom's sake, let's um, let's wrap the episode up by talking about the new film. And Victor, uh, I think we all in agreement that we do episodes called "Reviewing the New," where we we just give spoiler-free reviews of of new films. And we'd love for you to come back on after the new Dune releases, and that way we can have like kind of an extended episode of one of those, so we can talk about the new film. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, so, maybe he should do Dune. Maybe he should be the reviewer of Dune. Uh, yes, I, I definitely, I, I think so. And I feel good can, about it. We can just throw out little things like, "Yeah, it's awesome." Well, that was cool. Great special <laughs> effects. You cool, know, we can cool, do stuff good like job. that. Plot good. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that he's going to do a great job. I, I, I think that uh, I, you know, all I have is his past work to go by i think that he's very very good with with simple concepts um blade runner 2049 is probably the closest thing to like his adapting that um into a movie is probably the closest thing to dune um that he's done and i i'm sort of lukewarm on blade runner 2049 but there there are parts of it that i think he did really well and there are parts that i'm like eh, i don't know would have maybe done that differently but 
the trailers for the new Dune movie look incredible. And, you know, that's not necessarily <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean the movie's going to be a home run. We all know. <laughs> but um, but I, I have been reading that it premiered in Venice at the Venice Film Festival and people almost universally loved it. So there, there's so much money behind this thing that I, I think that everybody is making sure that the storytelling is great. Like it's going to be like Lord of the Rings, like it's going to be a great story, tightly told Decent acting, great special effects, great visuals, and the little snippets I've seen have been really tasty. So, looking forward to it. Well, that trailer is awesome. Like, it's great. And, again, I don't tend to watch trailers much anymore because it just gives away too much. And so I was just trying to go into the new movie without seeing the trailer. But after watching the movie, after going down the wormholes of the research and looking into everything, I was like, man, I want to see this trailer because, uh, again, saw the movie after it was over. I was like, I don't what on earth Mm. found out more about it. And I was like, yeah, that was it makes me appreciate the movie more. I like this story. This is actually really cool. So I had to go out and watch the trailer and the trailer looks fantastic he is my favorite director at this moment in time he's not my all-time favorite but i think he's the the best director uh, currently working t-man's like christopher nolan but um hey no baby <laughs> but anyway yeah I, I i'm really excited for this and I, I don't i'm not scolding the audience i'm just trying to rally the audience and say guys if we don't get out and support these types of films, I know it's not an original film, but it is going to be a very close adaptation to the book. If we don't get out and support these types of movies in the theater, I'm afraid they're going to go away. Uh, because, you know, Blade Runner 2049, the original Blade Runner wasn't a, a big hit. Uh, it was more of a cult classic that grew over time, but it wasn't a huge hit. And I just really want these real original sci-fi big blockbuster but with great directors to continue coming out. And not the only thing that makes it to theater is anything superhero related. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. this guy yeah. has done three killer movies in a row, Rival, Blade Runner, 2049, and now he's getting ready. And Tech Sicario for that matter. And I don't know if Dune will be good yet, so I guess I can't say that. But he's not he's not me and Tommy's favorite. We both know that me and Tommy are on the Damien Chazelle train. If you're gonna go in with current directors, right, Tommy? Yeah, Damien Chazelle's awesome too. So he's definitely one of the tops. Well, I well, I guess just me. He kind of nodded that off as maybe that was his favorite. I thought we were the same. Uh, well, I mean, Christopher Nolan's my favorite, but then Damien Chazelle's number two. Oh, okay. So I'm a little higher on that than you. Um, just like I'm a little higher on Steven, Steven Spielberg, I think. Anyway, so. <laughs> what? I'm just, whoa, 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 whoa. No, but I mean, this is like, I do remember the experience of watching Blade Runner 2049 in the theater. And like, I did, I did love it. And I do hope big sci-fi movies like this get made. I do wonder if these going to stick to like what I said earlier, though, Tommy. Are they going to stick to. The original Dune, or is it going to be weird? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be, well, is it going to weird some of the audience away? Yeah, going back to your original question, so a lot to unpack here. I've got to answer several things at once. First, I want to answer Wes's thing around uh, 
getting people to the theater and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't agree more. And what I want to see is all of us, you know, riding our uh, proverbial sandworms out there to the movie theater, <laughs> us with our weirding ways, blowing up these stupid streaming services and electric guitar in the background. That's what I want to see. Man, all that's spice. Nice. All on spice. Here's the thing. This is what I want to say to movie fans, and we could go. I could go on a huge diatribe about this, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm not on enough, enough spice yet. Um, you know, did you see that movie, the trailer Red Notice that Netflix did? This is their big movie. This is like it's going to spend like two hundred million dollars on it. It mm. looks atrocious. Mm. It looks so bad, and that's what we're going to have if we don't go out and support these big budget. You know, original movies by these big, big time, great directors, like you just said, Wes. And that's why I love Christopher Nolan, because he is one of the only big budget making big, bold, unique films. And and along with, you know, Dennis himself. So and I, I love what Dennis has been saying about this movie has been made for the movie theater. He wants people to go see it in the theater. He said the whole team made it for the theater, not to watch it on your phone or your app. And I, and I, and so that really hardens me. And uh, to your point, Gabe around, is it going to be too sci-fi? I think there's going to be elements that are pretty sci-fi, but I have a feeling, I think Dennis has a way about him that he, he can make these terms in a way that people understand. It's not going to be too all like David Lynchian, in other words. I think it's going to kind of be a, a more mainstream sci-fi version of what we saw, if that makes sense. I, so, I, after watching it, I think it would be kind of an abomination to itself if it wasn't just a little out there. Like at least It, needs it to be will be out weird. there just because the plot itself will be. Okay, I, I hope it sticks to that to that a little bit, but I I hope it's relatable too. Maybe down it down to like a fifth sense or you know. Well, I think some of element, I mean fifth sense that <laughs> we we saw that were so sci-fi. I think some of that we have to realize are also some of the David Lynchian aspects of the 1984 version. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of that crazy stuff is like pure Lynch, like those stuff you said with the cat and just you know. All the machinery and the bear. I mean, it's just all Lynch. I don't think they're going to go. This is going to be a PG-13, you know, mainstream, big budget sci-fi movie. Um, yeah. I think that aspect will be really good. The biggest concern I have, my, my final thing, I know I'm going on too long here, is that this is only half the book. So what we saw for the 1984 version was the whole book. And that's why it's super condensed towards the end. This is just going to be half the story. and they, so what they, is this? Is this a re, rehash of the original Dune, or is this? No, it's it's a it's a it's half the first book. So you've got so where the movie we just saw is the 1984 is the whole first book. This is going to be half of the first book, and so what that means is that in order for us to get the second part, so Dune Part Two, this movie has to be at least somewhat successful, and that's why we want once again people to go out and see it. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I'll be there. I'll be there with my, my butt in the seat in the theater. There. Us as well. And I, I think uh, I'd love to go down and, and see it in IMAX down in Nashville. Mm-hmm. That would be sweet. Definitely. Oh, you know, I just want to add one one more thing. Uh, like if, if you uh, really want the book experience, but you just 
can't get into reading dense sci-fi novels, much like myself. I, I have trouble getting through sci-fi stuff usually. Um, the audiobook of Dune, the, the the main one that's out there, which with it's an ensemble cast. It's not just one guy reading everything. It's an ensemble cast led by a guy named Scott Brick. Um, it, it is incredible. There's music, sound design, different actors playing different parts. Um, that's the way, a great way to experience the book, like verbatim. So it's it's just the Dune. You can get it on Audible or just pick up the CDs or whatever. The unabridged Dune audiobook. Highly recommend it. Sweet. Well, I'm going to have Audible, so I'm going to get that. I'm for sure going to read it and tell you my and comment on it next time we talk, Vincent. Agree. That sounds awesome. Well, are, does anybody else have anything that there any final parting words on Dune before we wrap this episode up? I think we've, we've taken a lot of spice tonight. We, we have. <laughs> I think I feel like we 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 did the book and the movie and the adaptations justice. I feel like we got the history. Um, and uh, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. So, uh, Victor, and thank you so much for being here with us tonight. You killed it. We're not just saying that. You you really brought your A game. Uh, we appreciate that so much. And so one more time for the audience, uh, let them know where they can catch up with you and more of your work. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, the easiest way to track me down is just to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dime Store Caesar, like D-I-M-E-S-T-O-R-E. C-A-E-S-A-R. Um, and uh, yeah, I have links to all my work and stuff in there and I do movie reviews and um, yeah, or, or you could just go on my website, which um, Wes, you mentioned earlier, it's vhrodriguez.wordpress.com. I even have an article that I just posted there about my favorite Dune quotes, um, if you feel want to check that out. So <laughs> uh, yeah, that's those are the best ways to track me down. Awesome. And audience, again, we encourage you to check out The Sound of Fear. And again, Victor, just thank you so much. We, we're looking forward to having you back. And, and seriously, hopefully you'll come on that reviewing the new episode in about a month as soon as we can all see Dune, which I, I plan on trying to see it within the first few days of its release. And, and let's reconnect and, and let's, let's talk about the new film. Cannot wait. Same here, sir. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to all you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. Well, audience, a couple of things we're going to ask you to do to support our efforts here at Real Talk. A big thing you can do to help grow our show is subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Anytime we release a new episode, it's going to be there waiting for you. We actually, the day we're recording this episode, we released a brand new episode. So um, we would love for you to subscribe. If you get an opportunity, another big thing you can do, and audience, these are free things. Leave us a rating or review on that favorite platform uh, where you listen to your podcast. And we want to connect with you. We want to hear from you. Follow us on social media. We're at we're on Twitter at Real, R-E-E-L underscore cast. We're on Facebook, Real Talk A Movie Podcast page. And honestly, that's where we would love for everybody to come is to our Facebook page. We have a lot of fun there hanging out. That's where we get the most interaction. Uh, we've got a ton more followers on Twitter, but a lot of Twitter is people promoting themselves. On our Facebook group, we actually have real discussions and have a lot of fun there. We're also on Instagram, official Real Talk Podcast. And then finally, we want to thank friend of the show, 
uh, Ren Burnett for designing our brand new podcast logo, which we're sticking on some t-shirts and we'll have those available on our social media as well. And then he also runs the Instagram page. And finally, we started a Patreon page. If you're interested in that kind of uh, support, just go to Patreon, type in Real Talk A Movie Podcast, and you'll find us there. And for us, that's a wrap.